from Friday night football to the county fair, from picnics in the park to hometown parades, from big cities to small towns, we are proud to serve our communities. Last year, we volunteered 19,000 hours and donated $5 million to local charities. Because lending a hand to a neighbor and investing in the people and places around us is the right thing to do. We are Park National Bank, and we are proud to serve you. Member FDIC. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist at The Post. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by former Defense Secretary Bob Gates. He served in that position under both President Bush 43 and President Obama. In that sense, he symbolizes what used to be a tradition of bipartisan foreign policy in the country. Welcome back to Washington Post Live, Mr. Secretary. Thanks, David. So we've got a lot to talk about. I'd like to get started with Russia. You uh, were a Russia analyst early in your career at CIA. You wrote a doctoral dissertation about about Russia. Well, I begin by asking you about the death of opposition leader Alexei Navalny in prison over the weekend. Do you think that Putin ordered his killing? And in general, why did this happen now uh, on the eve of Russia's presidential election? I want to say so-called election. Why now? Thing now because he thinks he can get away with it. Uh, you know, whether he directly ordered it or whether, like Henry II, he said, Will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Uh, just, uh, I think, you know, uh, Mr. Navalny is uh, the latest in a long line of victims of, uh, of Putin's determination to have no, no opposition. Uh, the killing of uh, Boris Nemtsov. Uh, on a bridge right outside the Kremlin, uh, the poisoning of Litvinenko and various others, um, Al Navalny, uh, the woman journalist several years ago. Uh, the list is pretty long, uh, and not to mention Mr. Prigozhin, who had the temerity to actually challenge Putin, uh, who died in a quote-unquote mysterious plane crash. So there's a long list of people that uh, Putin has uh, has had removed from the scene uh, one way or another. And I, I think, as I, as I suggested, I think he did it now because he could get away with it. And, uh, and he wanted to make sure that in the Russian election next year, or next month, that uh, there, was, there was no opposition to speak of. So when you say could get away with it, that implies that he has no reason to be worried about the political reaction, about about demonstrations, protest, uh, anger among among the Russian public. Is that so? Is he really um, that uh, insulated now from domestic dissent? I think so. I think that he, uh, uh, you know, the Russian. Um, Intelligence services have have such pervasive uh, um, sources and have such pervasive uh, surveillance techniques around the country that any time uh, a, a group of people, whether through the internet or some other means, uh, want to have a demonstration or or protest something, the police are there when they arrive, essentially, and and so. 
he really has, I think, imposed his will. And and frankly, you know, he also doesn't have much to fear uh, from the West in his view. It's not just his own people that he's not worried about at this point. I think he's feeling actually pretty smug. The Russian economy has uh, has recovered from the initial months of uh, sanctions. Uh, they've actually got a pretty good cash balance thanks to uh, selling oil and gas. And, and uh, they're getting a lot of consumer goods from China and from Central Asia and, and Turkey and elsewhere. So the daily lives of most Russians uh, have not been uh, affected very much, uh, of, except, of course, the families of those who, the many families who have lost uh, their sons, husbands, brothers in uh, in Ukraine. But I think he's feeling like things are going his way inside Russia in terms of the economy and control. And I think he believes that at this point, the West has done all they can do uh, to make life um, more difficult for him. And that, in fact, as the West begins to fracture, uh, that his position will only get stronger. That's a, a chilling assessment of things going his way. I want to press you on the, on the question of what the U.S. can do about it. The White House said uh, two days ago that they will announce new sanctions tomorrow. Uh, after the death of Navalny. Can you think of sanctions, uh, of things the president could, could announce tomorrow that would actually make a difference and, and penetrate uh, this sense Putin has, as you say, of growing in vulnerability? I think if there were sanctions that actually could influence his behavior, uh, we would have already imposed them on Russia. Uh, I, I don't have any idea what the administration has in mind. Uh, it may be sanctions against specific individuals, uh, against oligarchs. Uh, I, I don't know what they have in mind, but in terms of really impacting the Russian economy or Putin's position and so on, it's hard for me to believe they will come up with something uh, that is qualitatively more uh, impactful than what they've already uh, what they've already done. I was in uh, Munich on Friday as the news of Navalny's death came across the wires and watched as his suddenly widowed wife, Yulia, addressed the Munich Security Conference. Uh, very moving, uh, her face just showing the grief that she was experiencing. She now has said that she wants to lead a Russian opposition movement. Uh, pursuing the same goals as her late husband. Do you think that she can make any difference? And in general, what can an opposition do, not in terms of tomorrow, next week, next year even, but over the long run to alter the trajectory of, of Russia? I think it certainly is not a short-term uh, prospect. Uh, I hope that if she... Um, does go forward in leading the Russian opposition, that she does it from the outside, from outside of Russia, um, because if she's inside Russia, she may be arrested just as quickly as this young uh, former ballerina uh, was just arrested, I think, for making a $50 contribution to, uh, uh, to the Ukrainian cause. Uh, so I, I think, I think what, what needs to happen 
the one thing that we have not done uh, sufficiently, in my view, is use our strategic communications capabilities to communicate directly with the Russian people about what their government is doing, not just in Ukraine, but the corruption of the wealth, the siphoning of uh, Russia's wealth, uh, the, the repression, the, the killing of people like uh, uh, Mr. Navalny and others, uh, the kind of regime they actually have. And, and I think we have been uh, reluctant to press the kind of uh, effort inside Russia that, frankly, we did a lot of during the Cold War uh, when, when the Soviets were in charge of the country. We, we infiltrated all kinds of things uh, into Russia over time. Um, and not to mention the radios, Radio for Europe, Voice of America, Radio Europe. Uh, uh, Radio Liberty and so on. We still have those, but I think we've been very cautious about about using them against the regime and 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 using uh, internet, social media like Telegram and some of these other venues to try and send a message to the Russian people about the kind of government they had, so we could be actually helping uh, those in the opposition or who want to create some kind of an opposition inside Russia. So just to, to close out this this area of our conversation, if you were back at the CIA uh, today as, as director, would you be looking for ways to use that agency and, and other agencies of the government to, 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 to increase the pressure on, on, on Putin and to encourage to the extent possible uh, uh, efforts to, to, to challenge that regime? Absolutely. You want to say anything more about about how you do that? No, I think that I think that says it all. I just I think that the direction clearly has to come from the president. CIA isn't going to go off and do these things on their own, but it requires a it requires a strategic decision on the part of the president that that we are going to be supportive of the Russian opposition. So it's not just what CIA might do. It's what the State Department does overtly. It's what uh, what we do in terms of providing assistance to some of those groups. Um, you know, always before when we talked about this kind of thing, the question was, well, if you support them, uh, doesn't that compromise them uh, at home uh, as just being tools of the United States? My reaction generally has always been, they're already suspected or accused by their governments of being supported by CIA and the United States. So what's the point? Uh, we, I mean, we're they're getting blamed for something that is not happening. Maybe we ought to make it happen. So let let's turn to another uh, grim topic. Uh, we're coming up on the two year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, February twenty four. Uh, give us your assess assessment, Mr. Secretary, of the war after uh, after two years and where you think uh, Ukraine stands uh, against the Russian invaders. As so often has happened in Russian history, uh, their military performance at the outset uh, was very bad. Uh, and over time, they have uh, recovered. 
Uh, they have suffered enormous losses, 315,000 or so uh, killed and wounded, um, half to two thirds of the tank force that they had before the invasion and armor and so on. So they've had enormous, had enormous losses, but that characteristic of the Russians also over history. And, and meanwhile, they have got their defense industries back up and running. They have, and producing a lot of stuff. They're getting a lot of drones from Iran, building a facility with Iranian help uh, inside Russia uh, to build drones, getting ammunition from North Korea for artillery and so on. And, you know, a lot of people are referring to the war at this point as a stalemate. I'm afraid I believe that at this point it's actually not so much a stalemate, but that the Russians have uh, regained momentum. Uh, it's not breakthrough kind of momentum, but it is the sense that they are now the ones pressing the offensive. The The loss of Abdivka uh, was was important. Uh, it, it's not, a, you know, it, it, it creates an opportunity for the Russians to move the lines further to the east. Um, and everything I'm reading is that the Russians are sort of on the offensive all along at various different places along uh, that 600 mile uh, frontier. And, and they have more and more supplies coming in. I've, I've read that uh, for every artillery shell that the Ukrainians fire, the Russians are firing 10. And, and so the, the Ukrainians now are facing this shortage of ammunition, uh, artillery. They're facing shortages when it comes to air defense and so on. So I think, I think, that, the, I think that the Russians are feeling that the tide has turned and that while there's still a lot uh, fighting to be done, that, that the initiative has passed to them. Uh, and the question, of course, is... Uh, what is to be done about that? The Europeans, uh, who we so often criticize, have come through with uh, some $55 billion in economic assistance for Ukraine, a real lifeline for the Ukrainian government. Uh, the European governments have pledged a lot of military support for the Ukrainians, have signed security agreements, both the French and the Germans have signed security agreements with the Ukrainian government problem is the Europeans just don't have much in their stockpiles. And, and you know, they say they're going to do more uh, and produce more, increase the production of, of these weapons and ammunition and so on. But it won't, it won't appear on the battlefield until 2025 or perhaps even beyond. So while the Europeans have extended an economic lifeline, the Ukrainians, uh, the only real military lifeline is the one from the United States. And as we all know, uh, that one is, uh, shall we say, on pause right now. So we'll come to the politics of, of, of that uh, inability to, to pass the supplemental military assistance to, to Ukraine. But one thing that President Biden could do right now, I believe, with his, his existing legal authorities, is to send uh, what are called ATACMS 300s, longer range uh, missiles that could range targets in Russian occupied Crimea, for example. Uh, I, I wrote this morning that when President Zelensky spoke in Munich with a, a group of 
bipartisan members of Congress, he said, this is what I need to get through this period where Russians have the momentum. We need this now. First, do you think that's a good idea to send the ATACMs now? Uh, do you worry about the risks? Uh, and do you think it would have any uh, difference in, in this momentum shift that you described earlier? One of my concerns has been that the U.S. Uh, decision-making process in providing uh, more advanced weapons to uh, Ukraine has been deliberative, slow, and often too late. Uh, the, the government will deliberate for months about whether to send tanks and then ultimately decide to send the tanks. The government will debate for a year or more whether to allow uh, F-16s to go to the Ukrainians, and then we'll finally decide, yes, and we or other, and others can provide F-16s. We could have begun Ukrainian pilot training on the F-16s a year and a half ago. And, and then when the planes became available, uh, the decision was made to make the planes available, the Ukrainians could actually step into the cockpits and, and start flying and not have to begin the training at that point. So I think we've been I think we've been slow to provide the kind of weaponry that uh, that could have made a difference uh, in in the way the the flow of this conflict has has happened, and I think the same thing is true of the attackers of the longer range tactical missiles. I think you know giving the Ukrainians the ability to attack targets, for example, in Crimea, seems to me uh, to be a no brainer. It's their territory. If they choose to, if they choose to attack targets, they're attacking targets inside Ukraine, not targets inside Russia. No matter what Putin claims, and you know, I mean, if you want to give the Russians pause, if you want to, if you want to interrupt that sense of momentum that they have, why not be able to do things like drop the Kerch Strait bridge? That would have a big impact on the Russians. I think psychologically as well as militarily. Uh, so I think giving the Ukrainians the ability to strike some of these strategic targets in Crimea as they have attacked the Black Sea fleet successfully, I think is really important and, and could at least psychologically uh, change the tenor of where we are uh, at this point. So... Uh, it's been argued uh, by people who advocate doing what you just described, uh, providing capability to hit Crimea, that more broadly, Ukraine facing this growing Russian uh, momentum, uh, Putin's willingness to just keep stuffing human beings into the meat grinder, that Ukraine would be wise to try to hunker down in 2024, to protect the territory it has, uh, to um, refrain from efforts to go all the way to the Black Sea or the Sea of Azov as they tried to last year in their counteroffensive, which didn't work, but to get, try to get through 2024 uh, as intact as they can, hoping that next next year, 2025, would, would provide new opportunities for going on the offensive again. Do you think that's basically the right strategy? I think that you can do both things. <clears throat> I think I think you can do two things. I think first of all, 
we do, I mean, the whole, I think one of the main values of the package of uh, assistance, military assistance that's on the Hill right now would be able to give the Ukraine, would be able to provide the Ukrainians with significant additional air defense capability and would give them the wherewithal to establish a strong defense essentially where they are in the eastern part of the country. So I think I think for the time being, the first and most important thing for them to do is, is not to hunker down, but to establish a very strong defensive barrier in eastern Ukraine so they don't lose any more territory. So the Russians cannot have a successful offensive that takes back more territory or takes more Ukrainian territory and and thickens the Ukrainian ability to respond to these Russian attacks with artillery shells and, and so on, but also helps them rebuild their own defense industrial capability for the longer term, both in the near and longer term, because they have some of that capability, particularly in producing drones and some other things like that. But to keep the Russians uh, keep the Russians at bay, the same time that you hit some of the strategic Russian targets in Crimea and so on that I just was talking about. So I think you can do both things, and 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 at the same time, make it uh, use this year to make sure that Russia cannot go any further, any farther to the east than they already are. And and to so strengthen Ukraine that the Russians come to see the futility of trying to accomplish what their current uh, goals are. And what the Russians have told us and told others is they want they want both four provinces that they've occupied. They want the southern coast up to and including Odessa. They want a change of government in Kiev of our pro-Russian government, and they want pledges that Ukraine will never join the EU or, or NATO. I think we counter all of those things, uh, help the Ukrainians counter all of those things, keep them at bay, and maybe at some point, the Russians decide um, enough is enough. And particularly if we impose some additional pain on them with respect to the Black Sea Fleet and with respect to the Kerch Bridge and various other targets that that I think have you know, both psychological and military value for them. So I think I think this is all of a package, uh, and so you can call it hunkering down or being defensive. But I think it's basically recognizing first of all the Russian advantages in mass, uh, particularly just the significant demographic advantage that they have over Ukraine. Uh, and and their ability to bring to bear tremendous industrial capability for their own forces. What I've just suggested is an approach, and what others have suggested, is an approach that that prevents Ukraine from losing any more territory uh, to the Russians, holds the Russians at bay, strengthens Ukraine for the long term, and also imposes some strategic costs on the Russians. And uh, let me ask... Uh, as Biden pursued a program like that, let's say, what about diplomacy? General Mark Milley, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, used to say often that as much as we were doing to help Ukraine uh, f fight the war, we needed to do more diplomatically to try to see if we could help them get 
uh, a, a settlement that, that was not a, a concessionary to, to Putin. What do you think about that? Do we need to do more on the diplomatic front as well? It's not clear to me what to do. Uh, we've seen no indication that Putin is, I mean, the idea of a negotiation or a diplomacy is that there's something to negotiate. I haven't seen any evidence whatsoever that Putin is prepared to negotiate anything that he has done in, in Ukraine or negotiate about his longer term objectives in Ukraine. And so, you know, it takes two to negotiate. And so essentially, if you're pressing Zelensky and the Ukrainians to negotiate, uh, then, then there has to be some expectation of some give on the other side. Uh, you know, a lot of the critics uh, of the war and so on say, kind of, how does how does this end? What's the strategy that we're going to pursue? I think the strategy is what I just described, and that is helping Ukraine prevent any further Russian gains, bring this thing. Uh, give the re Russians every reason to believe they're not going to be successful in achieving their goals. And maybe at that point, you can have not necessarily a negotiated ceasefire, but essentially a practical stand down in which the level of violence significantly is reduced. And Ukraine can focus on its economic and military strength, rebuilding the country uh, and, and, and then pursuing the relationships with the EU and NATO. It seems to me that's the strategy, and and that's as probably as positive an end game as as you can see right now. I mean, my I think realistically, it's going to be very difficult in the foreseeable future for Ukraine to get back those four provinces and to get back Crimea. My view is though that the West and all the countries that we can get to join us position ought to be with respect to those provinces and Crimea, essentially our position during the entire Cold War with respect to the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania. We never recognized Soviet sovereignty over those three countries. And, and even they even maintained legations in Washington all through the Cold War, diplomatic legations. So we never recognized uh, Soviet control think no country should recognize Soviet control over those over those provinces or Crimea, that according to international law, that's all still Ukrainian territory. And maybe someday, under a different kind of Russian government, there can be a negotiation that returns some, if not all, of that to Ukraine. But it's not going to happen under Putin. Another dimension of... Uh... Russia's current sense of, of dominance here is its continued uh, nuclear saber rattling. The, the most recent example was last uh, weekend, former President Dmitry Medvedev made some comments that were, um, to me, just stunningly irresponsible. I want to just read you a brief uh, uh, excerpt. He said, attempts to return Russia to the borders of 1991, which means uh, to someday um, get those four uh, provinces of Ukraine back in Ukraine's hands uh, will lead to only one thing, that the global war with Western countries using all the strategical, strategic arsenal of our state against Kiev, Berlin, London, Washington, against all other beautiful historical places 
that have long ago been included in the flight targets of our nuclear triad. So that kind of, of, of nuclear uh, rhetoric has been a feature of this conflict. I want to ask you uh, how you respond to it uh, yourself. There are some people who think these Russian efforts really have taken us to a more dangerous place than we've been in since the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, where they speak directly about the use of tactical and, in this case, strategic nuclear weapons. Um, and, and how do you think more broadly about the, the question of uh, uh, deterrence in this era where the people being deterred seem to be us, while the Russians make ever greater threats about their willingness to risk nuclear war? Well, I think, first of all, Dmitry Medvedev has kind of gone off the deep end in recent years. Uh, uh, once Putin told him his time as president was up and it was time for him to recede, uh, he his rhetoric has has been far more um, outlandish, uh, I might say, than uh, than Putin's or anybody else's, uh, for that matter, in an official position in Russia. So I I pretty much discount what Medvedev has to say. And, you know, there was, there was I think, legitimate concern at the very beginning uh, of the war about the potential use of, of Russian use of tactical nuclear weapons. Uh, my view is that particularly after the first few months, that that concern has been considerably exaggerated. Uh, first of all, uh, tactical nuclear weapons are tactical. They don't change the strategic environment. So the use of two or three nuclear weapons, uh, tactical nuclear weapons on the Ukrainian front may have some impact in the immediate vicinity, but they don't change the overall strategic outlook. Uh, second, uh, the consequences of crossing the nuclear threshold are enormous, and it will bring countries that are sort of in the middle right now, like India, off the sidelines. Uh, and, and then you have Xi Jinping twice publicly warning Putin not to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine or with respect to Ukraine. There's a final sort of realistic factor, and that is that, uh, you know, in that part of the world, uh, well, in that area, the winds blow from west to east. Setting off tactical nuclear weapons is going to end up with Russia getting most of the radioactive fallout. So you know, just logically speaking, uh, I think I think that in, in terms of where we are in Ukraine now, uh, that that that's an exaggerated uh, that's an exaggerated threat. And frankly, I think it's as you suggested, the result has been we've ended up being deterred rather than the Russians. Another uh, strange new dimension of the Russian threat uh, came last week when uh, Representative Mike Turner prompted a discussion uh, of new Russian space weapons. The details are uh, still uh, unclear and classified, but as best we know, these are systems, perhaps nuclear powered that could disable the, the enormous uh, growth of commercial uh, net, uh, networks, constellations uh, in, in space, uh, as well as US military and communications 
capabilities. You've studied uh, these uh, matters for for decades. What was your reaction to this disclosure about about new Russian efforts? And more generally, um, how should we think about space as a, as a future military domain? Well, it, it's not terribly surprising to me that they would uh, explore uh, these kinds of weapons. You know, back in the 1970s, they were experimenting with what was called the fractional orbital bombardment system, which was essentially the use of space in terms of, uh, of launching uh, nuclear weapons. So, and and the idea of disabling uh, satellites uh, is not exactly a new one. Um, Again, the challenge is how do you set off that kind of a, if you're using actually a nuclear weapon in space, uh, how do you prevent it from simultaneously taking out all the Russian satellites uh, that are up there? How are you going to differentiate between a Russian satellite, a Chinese satellite, and an American satellite if you're setting off something as crude as a nuclear, as a nuclear device? So it it has a lot of it has a lot of complications, it seems to me. But the notion of of uh, countries figuring out and and Russia in particular figuring out or trying to figure out how to disable uh, an adversary's satellites and disrupt military communications and and uh, targeting capabilities and intelligence uh, is is not at all surprising to me. So I mentioned, uh, Mr. Secretary, the mood uh, last weekend in Munich uh, as being pretty grim. And one theme, sometimes stated, but often unstated, was a concern about what uh, Donald Trump's uh, election, uh, again, uh, as president, uh, might mean. We have a question from a member of our audience, Eric Povo from Belgium who asks, will a second Trump term mean the end of NATO? What do you think? Well, you hear different things from different elements of, uh, of uh, the former president's camp. Uh, some that this is all about pressure on the Europeans, on, on NATO members to do more for their own defense and and less about uh, actually walking away from, uh, from the... Uh, uh, from the alliance, I I think nobody actually knows uh, right now uh, what uh, what a uh, reelected President Trump would do with respect to NATO. NATO's made some pretty significant strides in recent years in terms of additional resources for security and and defense. Uh, when I was secretary, there were I think five countries that met the two percent uh, threshold of GDP for defense. Uh, there are now 18 of 32 uh, by the end of this year, and, and most of the countries in the alliance are headed in the right direction. Part of the reason is, is Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine, but the other reason is, and it goes back several years, has less to do with our prospective uh, election than it does with previous elections, and that is uh, questions in Europe, and I would say among all of our allies and friends, about whether the United States is still prepared to accept the responsibilities and the burdens of global leadership. And, and most of our allies and friends are hedging. 
um, they are building up their own defenses because they're not sure whether the United States is going to be there for them in the event of a future threat from Russia or, or somebody else. Um, I think that the, 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 the challenge that they face is how, whether, whether Trump is a one-off or whether Biden is a one-off. And it's that unpredictability about the future of American of America's role in the world that is causing this hedging to take place. You know, one, one of the points I like to make is that, you know, um, the leaders of Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Israel, there have been more visits to Beijing and Moscow by the leaders of those three countries in the last three years than there have been to Washington, D.C., so the rest of the world is not quite sure where America is headed, regardless of who is president. And, and they're all hedging uh, because they don't know. And, and this is a very real concern for our long-term vital interests, our long-term strategic interests. Because if we can't, if they can't count on us, we can't count on them. Let's switch to another crisis where American power and diplomacy, uh, certainly our interests are engaged in that. That's the Gaza war. Uh, the United States just vetoed another UN resolution yesterday calling for a, a, a ceasefire in the, in the Gaza war. I want to ask you um, whether you think that veto was wise, but more broadly, President Biden and Prime Minister Netanyahu increasingly seem to, to be on a collision course uh, in which Biden tries to get uh, a de-escalation of the, of, the, of the crisis in Gaza, and Netanyahu seems to be resisting. You're a longtime watcher of Bibi Netanyahu. What advice have you got for President Biden now in dealing with this uh, crisis, which has caused so, so much suffering? on both sides, but also still has the risk of becoming a much, much bigger, much worse conflict. I think that, I think that um, part of the problem is the United States needs to understand that unlike on a lot of other policies, Netanyahu on this two-state solution has a lot of popular support in Israel. I think there continues to be an underestimate uh, outside of Israel on the traumatic effect on Israel of October 7th. And, you know, Israel was created to prevent another Holocaust and to pre prevent pogroms, that there would be a safe place for Jews in the world. And, and in all of Israel's wars with the Arab states, they have never experienced anything like the massacre of innocent civilians that they suffered on October 7th. And I think it has had a huge impact uh, psychologically inside Israel. And, and so, you know, I think that, I think that the administration was correct after October 7th in the very strong uh, support that they provided for Israel under those circumstances. I think as the as the uh, that the retaliation against Hamas uh, in Gaza has proceeded, I think the administration has also taken the right position in terms of pressing harder for more humanitarian relief, more more food, more medicine, uh, and so on, and and to 
uh, and more effort to prevent collateral damage, to prevent the killing of innocent um, Palestinians. This has been made much tougher by Hamas's approach, which is to integrate themselves with the civilian population so that there is no way to get at Hamas without going through innocent civilians. This is what the Taliban did. This is what Hamas does. And it makes the situation all the more complicated for Israel. My own view, David, is that while we have to say, state that ultimately a two-state solution is the only solution, we have to recognize that it's going to be a long path to get there. And the notion of recognizing a Palestinian authority as a state now, I think, is a huge mistake. Um, There has to be a process, a sequence of events, uh, some established criteria of changes that have to happen in the West Bank, in the Palestinian Authority, and among the Palestinians themselves with Arab support that over time will allow some confidence to be built on the part of the Israelis that a Palestinian state next door is not going to be an existential threat to Israel, is not going to be a threat for another October 7th. And that's going to take time. And we have to, and we, you know, we can move in that direction. We've had a three-star U.S. general for years in, in Israel uh, training, uh, in charge of training Palestinian security forces. And over time, the Israeli security folks began to develop some confidence in those Palestinian security uh, people. And and so there are some things that can be done, but this is a, going to be a long process because it is going to require, before there can ever be a two-state solution, it's going to require a rebuilding or a building of confidence uh, on the part of the Israelis that this new state is not going to be uh, a threat to them. And I think that's what that's what the diplomacy in the West is kind of right now is missing, is the notion that, yes, we have to stipulate that someday there will be a two-state solution. But here are the things that have to be done. Here is the path that gets us to that uh, at some point in the future. You know, Neta, I've disagreed with Netanyahu on a lot of things over a lot of years, but he does have a point when he says, when you want me to negotiate uh, with the Palestinians, am I negotiating with the Palestinian Authority that might be willing to recognize Israel, or am I negotiating with Hamas that declares uh, the existence of Israel to be something they will always fight against and try to destroy this country? Which Palestinians am I negotiating with? Until we can give the Israelis some confidence on that score, I think we're not we're not going to have much success on the diplomatic front. So it's been a wonderful chance to tour the the this poor world and all its problems with one of the wisest uh, foreign policy observers I know, former Secretary of Defense Bob Gates. Uh, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure, David. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.